Hello, I'm Dr. Gloria Horsley, and I'm her daughter, Dr. Heidi Horsley. Heidi and I want to welcome you to Open to Hope Conversations, the podcast. We believe that the greatest gift you can give yourself after a loss is hope, using this moment to connect with others who have not only survived, but thrived. So let's get started. Welcome to the Open to Hope show. I'm your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley, with my daughter and co-host, Dr. Heidi Horsley. Well, Heidi, today we are going to talk about finding hope after a suicide loss, which is really tough. As as we know, we've uh, interviewed a lot of people and I've met a lot of people through Compassionate Friends and other organizations who've had a suicide loss. And, and I know it's not an easy thing. And I know people are looking for information on this. I agree, Mom. And, you know, sometimes people tell me when they have had a family member die by suicide that people aren't saying anything because they don't know what to say. And it's really hard because you know, you're know you sitting there in silence and you need support and nobody's talking about it or, or even coming up and saying, I'm sorry for your loss. Sometimes they're just trying to avoid people that have had a loss. Um, so it's hard. And we're gonna talk to our, our guest today who is also an expert, Anne Ear Daigle. So Anne is doing so many incredible things in honor of her son, Brian, who died by suicide in 2011. He was a very dynamic kid. He was a college student. He was very engaged in life. Um, and she's going to talk to us a little bit about him as well. Today, she is the co-founder and executive director of the Brian Daigle Foundation and Brian's Healing Heart Center for Hope and Healing in Niantic, Connecticut. It is an amazing center. I love it. It's this beautiful old house. It's gorgeous. Um, so please go on her website and look at it. And if you're in the area, visit it. Um, Anne is also a board member of the Connecticut chapter of the American Foundation of Suicide Pre Prevention and, she, and the, on the Connecticut Suicide Advisory Board. Um, and she's doing all this, as I said, as a tribute to, uh, to Brian. So welcome to the show, Anne. Thank you so much for having me. Brian died. He was at college, right? Yes, Brian was a sophomore at college in Vermont. Um, and this, as with many and, and most suicides it was a complete shock to everyone yeah yeah, yeah I, was reading, I was reading that he was an avid snowboarder he loved the outdoors mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. understandable why he'd want to be in vermont he must have been like loving the weather there and loving this the snowboarding there he did he did actually his freshman year i think he skied um killington 50 times wow, wow. <laughs> so he loved being outdoors he loved loved the mountains and he always assured me that uh, that was his safe place in Vermont. The school was amazing. It was really good as far as supporting us. Um, they brought buses of students down to Brian's services. Oh my goodness. And the deans came along with them. So, and they also had a service, two services up at his school. And so they did, um, they were very supportive. I know it's been seven years, seven and a half almost for us now. So, so much has happened now in the world of suicide and breaking down some barriers and beginning to talk about it. So I'm hoping that other schools would do at least what uh, Brian's school did, if not more. Brian was at Castleton State College in Vermont. Um, and Vermont has one of the higher um, suicide rates in the wow. States. Wow. Is that because of the weather or no? Or does that have nothing to do with it? Um, usually it's 
you know, with the loss to suicide, there's a multitude of factors that go into it. Yeah. It's never, you know, we usually don't have one reason why somebody will die yeah. by suicide. Uh, I always call it a perfect storm mm-hmm. because there's life events upon life events upon life events that that happen. And people who die by suicide, it's been known that at least 90% of them have either a diagnosed or undiagnosed mental illness. Mm-hmm. Well, well, you know, I did, I did a study with the families that had someone die in 9-11. And what we found in our research, it was through Columbia, is that if people had more than three major life stressors at the same time, like you said, Anne, that was the perfect storm. And they, they got into a major crisis at that point. Absolutely, like said, yes. There's a lot of variables oftentimes. We do a group. I've had a group. One of the first groups I did was our, a survivor of suicide loss support group. And... The majority of people we have in there have lost children, um, sadly. Um, although we do have people come through who have lost spouses, we have some who have come through that who also lost siblings. Um, but the majority of people that I see right now has been who lost a child, mm-hmm. whether it's a, a teenager or a young adult or or an adult child. Mm-hmm. And and what is unique about uh, death by suicide for the families that are that are grieving? It's very complicated um, because we have so many, so many emotions that, and we always have the unanswered why question. Mm -hmm. So we do a lot of the woulda, coulda, shouldas, and we have a, the guilt is huge. The stigma associated with it is also huge. You know, some people are afraid to even talk about it and say that their loved one died by suicide. So just that secret alone is they have to carry that. And I was thinking one of the hard things would be that some people will never, ever find out the why. They don't. And so it takes a long time to come to a place where you're understanding that that will never happen. You know, for myself personally, it took quite a few years before I just, you just drop that storyline after a while and understand that it's not going to serve you any purpose to keep going back there again and again. Yeah, now, have you found any difference between men and women responding to the loss of a family member to suicide? I do. Um, men, and I don't want to stereotype them, but men will often put things in a box and categorize it, uh, where women, all, their grief is all, I, I imagine a big rubber band ball where you see all the, the bands tied up in this big knot. And that's as female, our grief is just can be all consuming, where men are able to sometimes compartmentalize and put it in different places. Mm-hmm. I've, I've noticed uh, sometimes um, at meetings that I've been to and uh, conferences, sometimes I find, and I, and I as again, I don't want to stereotype, but the men are angry. I see them as being a little more angry in that they see their wives as being so hurt. And yes. they, and there's, they don't, there's nothing they can do. And it, it's so frustrating. They don't like to see their wives so hurt or their that partners. Yes. And they always, men always think they have to fix something. Mm-hmm. And with grief, as you know, whether it's suicide loss or any other loss, there's no fixing it. You can't make it better. And so men often feel powerless when it comes to that. They want to just make it all better mm-hmm. and they can't. So, so what do you see that people need? What helps people that have had a family member die by suicide? Uh, first of all, I think no judgment. 
um, no asking questions. It's really just saying, you know, there are no words for you right now and I'm here for you. Just supporting them, just sitting with them. No conversation is needed. Um, maybe, you know, as with other losses, just doing errands or helping them out in the home, doing things that they just can't, they don't have the strength to do at that time. Um, but also talking about it. You know, we want to talk about the person. We want, even though it is a suicide loss, right? I loved hearing about your son and, and snowboarding and things. I mean, those, those stories are so much fun. We can just see him whipping down the mountain and all the ski days he had. And, you know, yeah. there's, there's so much more to to people that we love. That is, you know, we get so hung up on the end, you know, the last few days, few weeks, few hours, and especially when it comes to a tragic and traumatic losses as far as suicide. But it, the person was so much more than those last moments, right? They were their whole life. So we have to, when we are able to, and again, I don't give any advice with people because what worked for me does not work for somebody else maybe, but I can just share what worked for me. And so if we can just, you know, hopefully when the smiles, when the memories are, you can smile and not have tears. It takes a long time though. One of the questions okay. I get from people that have had a suicide in their lives is sometimes they don't want to tell people how the person died. They don't, they don't, they might tell them that it was a suicide, but they don't want to tell them the details. And, and what I've heard is that people feel like people want to know how it happened. Right. And, you know, everybody's focused a lot of times with, with my death, with my brother's death, with the deaths of how they died. And then they go, they don't, they, then they stop talking about it. When well, we want to talk about, like you said, how they lived. So what would you say to someone that says, Heidi, I don't want to tell, when people come up and say, how did he die? When I say he died by suicide, they say, well, how did he do it? If I don't want to respond to that, what could they say instead? How could well, they say that's such a difficult question for us because we relive the moment by saying how they did die. So I tell people, you know what, that's a very personal question. I'm not ready to answer that right now. Um, and it really doesn't matter. Which it doesn't, you know, he's, they're gone and nothing's going to change it. So, and as far as um, saying how they died, I do a lot of work with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and there's uh, really important research out there that we promote safe messaging, right? Mm -hmm. So if we say how someone died, that's really not a safe message because it could trigger mm -hmm. another person. So um, we try and avoid that as much as possible. And at any point, if a journalist asks us, we absolutely do not answer that question. So if you're in a group, many times people will say how their loved one died. So, um, but they're in a safe environment where they can be supported. Um, mm -hmm. But if you're out and just, you know, I've been, you know, meeting people, friends and people I know in my town, well, how did he do it? Mm -hmm. And to me, that's almost a, just a knife in my heart when they ask that, when I'm not in a safe environment to answer that. I'm feeling mm -hmm. very vulnerable and very scared. Mm -hmm. Mm. I, I think it's important for people to hear that word scared because it, that's, you know, if you've had a suicide loss and people ask you, don't be surprised if you have fear come up. Absolutely. Yes. That's a big, you know, you have fear for a long time because um, with my instance, you know, my son, I never imagined that, that he would do that. So your fear factor is elevated. <laughs> Um, so high because you're afraid that other people that you love so desperately 
are going to not take their life, but they could die by accident or, or something else. So mm -hmm. big thing that we hold on to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, but, but I want to say for people, um, and I think you were saying it too, there can be some therapeutic benefits for sharing details of your story in a safe space. Absolutely. And you're right, because we do need to process it. And how do we process it? It's by telling our story and mm -hmm. telling our story over and over and over again. So I know that's how I did it. And I needed time to process it. And the same with all the other emotions that we're feeling, the guilt. I needed to feel that guilt. And I processed it until no longer I felt it was, again, serving me any purpose. Where do you see people getting stuck, as it were? I mean, I've had people call me six years after a loss and say, help, I, I feel stuck. And they do. I mean, they, they will approach you and say, I'm stuck. What, you know, what do you suggest? You don't want to release your loved one, right? I think sometimes with me, when I held on to that pain, it was my connection to Brian. In a strange way, I was tethered to him through my, my grief. And I felt if I let go of that grief and that pain that I would be letting go of him. So, you know, I try to encourage people to learn that love doesn't die, that they are still with us and that our love can grow, believe it or not. I never thought that. But now I know that my love for my son continues forever and ever and gets stronger, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Heidi, you always talk about the memories, right? Yes, and, and it, you know, I think you're making a good point, Anne, because you're still connected to him, Absolutely. but you're not connected through the pain anymore. Now you're connected through the love, and he was positive, and he was larger than life, and he lived life to its fullest, and so the connection is when you're connected at that level. The pain is being connected at, at the moment of the way that they die at their, at their death. Yeah. I used to connect with my brother through the pain as well. And I realized I'm connecting to him around the way he died, not, not around the way he lived. Yeah. So I, lo I love that idea. It's so important for us to find a new way to connect. And I think initially it's really hard because we want them in the room physically with us. We don't want a continuing bond. But we have to finally, like you said, let go and go into the next chapter and, and figure out a way to still stay connected in a different way. And you've certainly yeah. done that with Brian. It, it's difficult though, and, and it's hard yeah. to tell people that and explain yes. to them in the early weeks and months and even years of their grief. So they're going to process it their own way, but hopefully at some point they will find that, you know, it was like a light bulb moment for me. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember I'm like thinking, oh my goodness, I can still love him. So yes. that's when I, I was able to kind of release that. And I think of a, uh, visually, I think of a balloon releasing, but yet I'm still attached to him. Mm, I like that. I love it. Um, can you talk about your uh, your resources and give recommendations to people who've had a loss to suicide? Yes. Yeah, so uh, again, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, they have a wonderful um, section for survivors of suicide loss. We do so many events. We do our out of the darkness walks mm -hmm. that you can join a community and have these walks, feel connected. I definitely recommend people join a group if they can for a loss to suicide um, to feel supported. I know with myself, you know, I felt so alone and so isolated and shameful and all of these feelings. But when I was put in a group situation, I wasn't alone and I could share whatever I needed to share. So being in a group was very helpful for me as well. 
um, if, if somebody needs support and wants to reach out to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, we have a program called Survivor Outreach where they can request a one-time visit from a peer who also lost a loved one to suicide. And we can do it via the phone, via you know, the computer, or we can make a personal one-on-one -on -one visit with them. Wow, that's nice. Now talk about your organization and your, the house you have and where you're located. So we have the Brian Daigle Foundation, which is for grief support for any loss, um, not just suicide loss, but any loss of a, a loved one. Uh, so we have several kinds of support groups going on for loss of a spouse, loss of a child, suicide loss, and general grief loss. Um, and then in addition to the grief support, we do a lot of work in the world of suicide prevention. Mm -hmm. So I, um, I never thought I could to do suicide prevention work, but I found in doing the grief support, especially with suicide loss, that prevention work and education was needed throughout our community. So we have different suicide prevention programs and trainings that I take out to the community and to the schools. That's awesome because one of the things that we have found in interviewing people is that when they're healed enough to be able to go in and try to do something to change, you know, any small change, it's really a part of the healing process. Being able, you're not a victim, you're a person who can go out and do something positive in the world. We have to, you know, I see so many people who stay in that victim role. So, you know, coming out of that victim role and becoming more of an advocate for, for whatever cause that you want to advocate, even just for your loved one, um, it does give you power and healing. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much for being on our show today and for all the wonderful work you're doing. Thank you. I had a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, Anne, and thank you for everything that you're doing. You are definitely saving lives, and I know that Brian is your guiding light. Thank you so much. I believe that, too. <laughs> and thanks, everybody, for watching and listening to this show today. And Heidi and Anne and I all want to remind you that if you've lost hope, please lean on ours till you find your own, and God bless. I'm Dr. Heidi Horsley. You have been listening to Open to Hope, the podcast. You can follow Open to Hope on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To learn more, visit us at opentohope.com and go to Apple Podcasts to subscribe. I'm Dr. Gloria Horsley. Join us again next week for another Open to Hope conversation, where we invite you to lean on our hope until you find your own.